1: Our guest today is COO Alliance member Derek Fredrickson, COO and fractional integrator of Boldheart. Derek is responsible for overseeing and managing all aspects of the day-to-day operations of Boldheart, focusing on business development, planning, strategy, and team. Derek is an expert in business operations, team building, systems, and marketing. Derek's down-to-earth leadership style allows him to effectively lead and manage and keep accountable a virtual team of 25 plus individuals while efficiently focusing on exponential growth activities that allow the business to scale and expand. When he's not running the show at Boldheart, he can be found skiing in the Alps, drinking French red wine, Madoc being his favorite, listening to house music, vying for a way to play more tennis, and spending time in Paris with his wife Fabienne and their three awesome kids. In addition, Derek serves as the COO integrator for other entrepreneurial clients, supporting them and their vision into reality. So Derek, welcome to the Second Command Podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Cameron. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm curious how you actually divide your time between multiple brands and acting as kind of that second in command for them. And then um, we'll kind of bounce around a little bit from there. Can you kind of just talk to us about that, how you do balance your time?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been an evolution because in the beginning I was focused solely just on Boldheart and that's the business that I've been working on with my wife Fabienne for the last uh, 10 plus years and then as that business has scaled and leveraged over the last few years, it's allowed me to free up my time more to focus on doing the integrator COO work uh, for some other clients. So I have two clients here in France. Uh, another client in the US, as well as the Boldheart team, which is based in the US. So luckily me living in France, I can kind of focus my mornings a bit on the French clients and kind of working with their team and working with the visionary CEO and the founder and helping them with that. And then usually my afternoon is more focused on the work that I do with my US clients. Uh, But I'm very diligent about my time. So I'm very structured as most uh, CEOs would have to be in terms of, you know, I've got my days calendar out. I've got my time meticulously planned and organized so I know exactly what I'm doing and where doing it. Um, and that's part of, I think, why I've been successful in the role is being able to just be very organized and planned out in that way. Um, and also just having boundaries. You know, I don't work on nights and weekends. I'm very cognizant of the fact that at, uh, you know, six or seven o'clock my time, it's 12 or one o'clock in the East Coast. So if you're having lunch, Uh, Where you are in America and you need to talk to Derek, it's dinner time. It's going to have to wait until the next day. So it gives me an opportunity to create some more boundaries of how I work with my team and how we communicate and
1: collaborate in that regard. I've got a a bunch of questions I want to ask about this too. And just for clarity as well, the CEO of your company is Fabienne, your wife. Yes, correct. Yeah, that's right. When did you join (laughs) her and, and come on board as the COO? And then how does that relationship work? Yeah. Oh gosh.
0: How much time do we have?
1: Okay. Uh, so I, no, I. So my background is in Wall Street, kind of project
0: management. That's what I had done before I joined the kind of entrepreneurial world. I did that in two thousand eight, just before the whole financial crisis meltdown and everything else. Um, so my wife had grown at that time a company called Client Attraction to a very successful uh, first time at the seven figure mark. Um, But as she said, uh, it was mostly kind of built on toothpicks and band-aids. So when I came in, I brought a lot of that kind of structure, that process uh, mindset into how we were going to build and scale the company even more. Um, And through that work of leveraging the company and building the team and finding the right people in the right seats and developing processes and systems and more efficiencies and everything else, we were able to grow and scale the business more and more. Um, but at that time it was the first time obviously that we had worked together. So I, you know, she kind of did a lot of the client facing, the marketing, the sales, the delivery, I was focused more on the operation side, kind of backstage versus front stage, managing the team, managing the processes, managing the projects, the plans, the PL, and and everything else. And nobody else in that industry that was, was working in a husband and wife capacity in that way, or at least working well where they could share a lot of best practices. So we were kind of figuring it out as we were doing it Um, and, you know, full transparency, there was some conflict. There was some challenges around the ways she wanted to run the company and some ideas and some, you know, discussions that I had around how the company should evolve. And it's, it's, it's a great thing when you have a partnership, like a husband and wife that are in business together when they're fully aligned, but it's sometimes hard to get there. And we were able to do that over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. Um, And part of that is just very, very clear on what her role is as the CEO and the founder and the visionary and very clear on what my role is as the COO and kind of integrator and, and respecting each other's differences, respecting each other's strengths and understanding and playing that more and more to our advantage and not trying to blur the lines. I don't want to try to be the visionary, nor does she want to try to be the COO. So if we kind of allow people to stay in their brilliance of what they should be doing to move the business forward... And we don't let the ego get involved we don't let personal matters get involved or anything else then that's been a real kind of
1: magic uh, magic sauce for us and th- and that's really one of the keys to the ceo coo relationship as well i'm even working at working on a book right now that's going to come out in about a year on that but the the magic or the the art i guess of staying in in your own lane and not trying to become the visionary but how do you do that when you're also married to the person and and you know, you're know you around the vision and excitement of that entrepreneur all the time? How do you not get caught up in that? How do you allow yourself to just stay where you are and, and vice versa?
0: Yeah, I think there's times when we do get together and I kind of wear more. So I'll have, we, we tell the story that we have different hats. I might have the husband hat. I might have my COO hat. And also times I have the, the, the kind of co-business owner hat because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's our business in the sense that because we're married and and we live together and work together and have a family together, it's our business, but it's also very much her vision. She's the one that created the company. She's the one that built it to that level. And I know that without her being the visionary, if I tried to be the visionary to get it to the next level, I wouldn't be able to do that. That's not my skill set And that's not my strength. So I know that when I put my best foot forward to be the COO, it's the way that I can actually help move the business, the furthest. Um, But at the same time, we have those conversations as a husband and wife and say, so what do you think? So it gives us that advantage, but we have to be careful because if we, again, blur the line,
1: sometimes it can, it can, you know, (laughs) bite us. (laughs) And it's so interesting because that's exactly the the setup that we had with Brian and myself when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Like I came in as the 14th employee and I had certain ideas for the business, but I really defaulted on the vision to him. And then he really just let me figure out the how and i don't think yeah, we exactly. realized i don't think we realized until much later until we got to the 100 million mark how well we had allowed each other to just stay in their lanes and we just didn't i didn't take anything personally that it was his vision because i joined him, no. his company but i also wasn't married to him although people called yeah. us you know they yeah thought we i think were. if
0: you if 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 there's the, the i love what you said cameron about staying in the lane but also if you put your the best interest of the company first, as opposed to your own personal interest or your own kind of personal motivation or ego, and knowing that in order, if I look at my role in the company or Fabian's role in the company as an asset, as something that I can can leverage in order to get a higher return on that investment of, of that asset, I know, and I just had this conversation today with her. We did a planning session with some of our core uh, leadership team and Fabienne and I were, were doing that together. And what we realized is that for her to add the most value, she has to stay in that visionary box. She has to be in that CEO seat. And when she starts to move over into something else not only does it drain her energy which kind of deflates her and demotivates her in some way it can then complicate things and i know the exact same thing if i'm trying to create the vision and say here's where we're going to go and and here's how we're going to get there um, I, i need that from her but we can do that together because we're husband and wife um and because we've been able to do that i think it's allowed us to then use the business in a way, I don't say use the business, but have the business run almost like as a self-managing company and allow us to explore other interests that really fit for what
1: she wants to do as the visionary and what I want to do serving, you know, now other clients as their COO as well. So now, how do you make sure that you don't let the business interfere in your life that, that you actually have? I know you said you don't like working on nights, you don't work on weekends. How do you mm-hmm. make sure that, you know, every meal you're out with her or when you're on date night or when you're just hanging out? Doing whatever on weekends, you don't talk about business because it's on your mind and it could be on hers. How do you, or do you separate that? I have to, 100%.
0: And in the beginning, full transparency was not easy because, you know, there's, I could tell you so many different stories where it's a, I remember a Sunday morning, we were at the playground with the kids and I just happened to be looking at my phone and I got some email that was something related to work. And I think I mentioned something to her and then it was like, Killed the day, right? Just, like, just shot the weekend. Just from that one moment of interrupting, what was a personal matter with something that was business related. Now, if I,
1: yeah.
0: if if I, if I wasn't working with her and somebody else who was the CEO, you know, got that email, they wouldn't have shared it in that way. So I have to be very, very careful to not necessarily blur the lines in that way. And sometimes with her as well, you know, as the visionary, sometimes we'll be talking about things. We're just talking, we're not getting into tactics. We're not talking about implementing anything. As Fabian will say, I'm just throwing some spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks and I'm talking to my husband. I'm not talking to my COO. Ah, And I'll say some things in the same way, which is I'm talking to you as my partner, as my wife, not as I would talk about what my day was like, or what your day was like, right? So you have to kind of, you know, have some reality sense in that way. Um, but then the other thing I'll share, which is a hack, which is very, very important, especially for the two of us, um, because it relates to boundaries and communication. You know, we have, you know, text message and WhatsApp and we use Slack for our company and everything else. I never do anything that's personal on Slack, which we use for business. And I never do anything that's business related on Slack on, on WhatsApp or text. I'll never send her a WhatsApp and say, did you talk about the blah, blah, blah regarding the team launch or something like that? Because that's my sacred space. That's personal. And I do that Mm -hmm. with everything. But the same, I will never say something or even a team Zoom or on Slack and refer to her. As my wife, I refer to her as the visionary or the founder and and my role as the integrator COO because we try not to blur those lines because when we blur the lines, it just complicates things, it creates more complexity, it just adds confusion and you can then find yourself you know, sitting at the restaurant and talking about work and you're in a rabbit hole, we're like, where'd the hour go? We're supposed to connect just the two of us, right? Where well, this yeah. is like a date night, you know? So we have to respect those boundaries.
1: I remember when my my brother started working with my dad's company, my brother would call my dad when they were at the office, he would call him John. And then later in the same day, they'd be at the golf course and he'd call him dad. And and he was yeah. able to, he was able to inter, intertwine that. Hey, dad, grab me my putter. John, can we yeah. work on this? Dad, I'm like, weird. It was so weird to hear it. Um, yeah, you, yeah. you said you used a term backstage front stage. Do, were you part of the strategic coach program at some point or yeah, you, yeah, for okay. about
0: five, six years? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause that, that's a term that Dan Sullivan has talked a lot about where the, the front stage is usually the kind of the actor, the CEO, and then backstage is kind of the operational, you know, it infrastructure side of things. Is that part of how you run the business as well as, is, is delineating roles, front stage backstage?
0: yeah for sure i think again once i got really clear that the best way to tap the value of what we can both do in the company was for her to be in that front stage role and for me to be in that backstage role it's what i enjoy to do and obviously her as the visionary the founder she enjoys that front stage role very very much um there was points in the beginning where i felt again i had my ego get in the way i was still kind of new to this and thinking you know maybe i should do a launch maybe i should do an event maybe i should sell a product and i realized I'd done that, but then I really felt like where I could add the most value was doing everything I wanted to be doing backstage, behind the scenes. I don't necessarily need the accolades. I don't need the, um, you know, the, the, the star view in that regard. Um, and it's what I enjoy doing. It's like I could be front stage to my backstage people. That's where I like to show up. It's like I can lead them. I can manage them. I can hold them accountable. I can inspire them. I just did a team video today. I do it once a week. Where it's kind of a state of the union here's where we are here's where we're going here's how we're going to get there and i do a loom it's about 30 minutes and i know just in the same way that fabian does that for her clients i'm doing that for my team so that they feel on board they feel inspired they know what their part is going to be so i have a front stage aspect to my backstage role Mm. um but i enjoy doing that the most yeah for That's sure great.
1: i love that example actually and it's funny just to kind of complete my thought on the dan sullivan component with backstage front stage when i first heard him talk about it back in the late 90s early 2000s he was talking about phantom of the opera as the the theater production yeah. in new york and he said you know on there's only ever like three or four people on stage at phantom of the opera and those are the, like the actors the performers but the backstage that makes that happen are the designers, the set designers, the costume, the lighting, the people selling tickets and marketing and selling you the popcorn. Yeah. Without all those people, the show would never happen. So it didn't matter how great the actors were without the backstage and it didn't matter how great the backstage were without the front stage. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It's and then you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then if you've got, if you're the person in charge of all of the costume people, you're the leader of the costume group. So you're front stage exactly. to that backstage. That's cool way to look at it. You said something about, you know, there there weren't a lot of examples of couples working together. Um, There was an organization in Canada called CAFE, which is the Canadian Association of Family Enterprise. And it's it's an organization that focuses on couples and multi-generational family businesses. Did you ever find any resources that you turned to or did you just talk through stuff and work through stuff and, you know, Hodge it together from stuff like strategic coach, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it was, it was mostly that I think we got a lot of insights when we were in strategic coach because we were in that together. I remember at one of the first few meetings that we had with Dan, um, you know, we were, we were in the room with like 30 or 40 different entrepreneurs and you know, it's designed for the visionaries, right? It's designed for the CEOs, the founders. And I was there, you know, kind of with Fabienne and and, uh, having the same conversation around, you know, where do we want to take the business? What's going to help us get there? Um, But I think when we started to do some assessments, and we started to get really get clear on things like unique ability. That's where it started to shed a light on how do we do more of what we are really naturally gifted at, like the things that are going to, again, add the most value to the company. Um, and I remember at one point it was interesting because I was walking around, you know, about Colby, right? The, yep. the I was just going to, just to, to like,
1: ask you, yeah, go ahead.
0: So I have a Colby that is not like anybody else in strategic coach because I am wired to focus on backstage. And I remember I had this insight because I was walking around and they were, you know how in coach they sell different resources like books and everything else and I went yeah. up to the back of the team and everybody has their Colby printed on their name badge. And I had a Colby, the exact same Colby score as somebody that was working at the back of the room selling books at the table. What's, and I thought to what's myself- your,
1: Colby, What's your number, your Colby profile?
0: I'm a eight, I'm an 8814.
1: Whoa, 88, okay. So I'll explain that yeah. in a second for everybody. And what's Fabian's? Yeah. Uh, she's a
0: seven, six, seven, two, or yeah, seven, six, seven, two. So it's not, not that far off, but you know, as you know, with Colby, there's a big difference when you get to like eight, nine, and 10 versus five, six, seven. Yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm obviously 4- long fact finder, a long follow through. Yeah,
1: I'm a four, three, nine, three. So yeah. just, just for people that are listening, the, the first number is fact finder. And that means that you initiate projects by asking a lot of questions. And then in in layman's terms, I've always said the higher your number, the more questions you'll ask before you'll start a project. So you might ask eight questions to start a project. I have a four as a first number. So sometimes I don't even ask questions to start a project. Yeah, you just go right to it. And then the second number is called follow through. And I've actually talked to, um, to David Colby and Kathy Colby about that. I think it's misnamed. I think it should be called the systemizer or the, the planner because it's more about mm-hmm. putting a playbook or a plan or a system or a checklist in place before you'll start a project. So you've got another eight. So for you initiating yeah. projects, you ask questions, you put a system in place and then you go. Um, exactly. Fabian's is interesting because with her, but the 7672, she's her third number is seven is higher and her first number is higher. That's interesting. Is that, That's not traditionally very entrepreneurial. That's someone who's really strong, usually in around um, working on corporate reorganizations, uh, maybe yeah. working on, on understanding corporate and then giving them plans to execute on. What's the business of Boldheart? What do you guys do? Business
0: coaching. So we help entrepreneurs basically scale and leverage their business. So, but I'll say what's interesting is where there was some, some conflict was in the quick start. The third number initiating ideas coming up with, you know, improvising and risk tolerance. So I'm a one. Yeah. She's a seven. So whenever you have a difference of three or more, it's kind of like oil and water where there can be some conflict, healthy conflict. But when we got clear on that, because before this we didn't know, we didn't know why I was why she was wired to want to throw spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And I'm here capturing ideas and thinking I've got to implement all of these with a team that's already got 110 things on their plate. Like this isn't going to work. That's where the conflict came from. But when I realized she's a high idea generator, likes to start things, doesn't necessarily always finish them, but she's got a systems oriented mindset, but I'm wired for systems. You give me a process or a system to implement and I'll do that like eight hours a day, right? That's where the eight fact finder and eight follow through. So, um, that was an interesting insight I had at strategic coach. And what I realized is that I can serve entrepreneurs and visionaries and CEOs at that level, at that strategic level, being an eight, eight, one, four, that's where there's a lot of magic that happens. So it was a big insight I had when I experienced that.
1: And for anyone who has a high first two numbers dealing with an entrepreneurial CEO, there's two tricks that I'll give you that are list to our listeners that help will help them. When the entrepreneur comes to you with the idea, the first thing that we as COOs are supposed to say is, I love your idea. Let me ask, yes, you, exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you a bunch yeah, of questions so true. So that I can catch up it's with so you. so true. Because as long yeah. as they know that we're going to ask them a bunch of questions, but we like their idea, they don't feel like we're debating them or arguing with them, right? Yeah. And then the, the yeah. second part is, is to go to the entrepreneur and give them the bottom line first, give them the executive summary and know mm-hmm. that they might ask us questions later, but don't feel bad if they don't ask us all the questions because it just means they trust that we've already done the questions ourselves. Exactly. Oh, right. that's great. Yeah, that's great.
0: And I'll say the other thing. So there was Colby was a huge insight when we did StrengthsFinder by Gallup. Mm. That was a huge revelation as well to understand not just our five themes, but the, the the five strengths, but the themes so you know about StrengthsFinder and four of my strengths are in executing. So when I knew that I'm wired to execute with my strengths and I've got a Colby that fits that type of profile. Then I was like, just let me at it. Like, let's, let's, what are the projects? What are the plans? What are the things that we can get done Um, and, and help hire a team and train the team and onboard a team that can think like that and execute like that. It's how we were able to get so much done in such a short time. But those assessments and having that clarity to understand who we, uniquely are and and gifted at that, even though they may be completely different, but then being able to step into that was an absolute game changer.
1: It's really interesting. Like I don't understand why more companies don't use these tools in the right way. To, I don't tend to use them as much though in the interviewing and hiring process. I tend to use them more once I have the people in the roles based on the fact I know they've done it before and they're the right cultural fit, I use it to try to learn how to work better to, with them. But do you use it in the interviewing uh, and hiring of people as well? You-
0: yeah. So uh, we have two two programs in our in in Boldheart. Um, one is called the Growth Track, and one is for the called the Leverage Track. Our Leverage Track is for members that are making six figures or more. Every single member, when they join, part of their in- on like intake or onboarding process is to do their Colby and their Strengths Finder because it's essential for an entrepreneur to know how they're wired to take action, their Colby, and what their strengths are. And obviously, if you teach things like operate from your strengths and delegate your weaknesses, you need to know what your strengths are in order to be able to focus more on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Um, so that's a huge part, but in the interview and in the screening process for onboarding team members, I don't speak to somebody unless I know what their Colby and their strengths finder is because otherwise I feel like I might be having a conversation where they're trying to sell me for a position or a role where it might end up being a square peg in a round hole Mm. because people are very good in, in selling themselves on LinkedIn, on selling their CV and selling everything. But if I know that I'm hiring as an example, a bookkeeper. I don't want somebody to be a low fact finder and a low follow through and a high quick start. I don't want somebody to be improvising and coming up with ideas on how to do my p and no. I want them to be fact finder, follow through, low risk tolerance. Conversely, if somebody's in sales, it's good if you can have some fact finder and you want to do some follow through, but I want a high quick start because I want that person to be able to improvise, to pivot, to kind of come up with objection handling on the fly. You need to have a high tolerance of risk for somebody to be able to operate in that way.
1: So we do use the assessments a lot in the hiring process. You you just touched on something that I've laughed about for years, which is that there's no single great salesperson that will ever make it through an HR screening process (laughs) because HR people hate salespeople. Because yeah, the, because yeah. they're so they're so completely different, right? HR people are yeah. policies and procedures and follow the systems and and they're a little more calm and stable. And then salespeople are winging it and shooting from the hip and making it up on the fly. Yeah. and They don't even know there's a box, let alone are the inside of it, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so let's go back and talk about the multiple brands that you're working on. And I also want to talk a little bit about some of the time boundaries because you're also operating from Europe. So you're also dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, your day really starts around you know one o'clock in europe and can end at seven or ten so what what's your day look like working from europe um Mm -hmm. how do you kind of time block that out so you have a life and so that you're working with clients
0: yeah so the mornings are typically my buffer time there are the two clients that i have that are my french clients they don't take that much of my time so any of the meetings i need to do with them are typically on the morning French time because then it doesn't compete with my afternoon if I need to be with the team in the U.S. for the two clients I have there. Uh, but it's also my buffer time. It's I'm, I'm a structured guy, right? So I'm using a lot of tools. I'm using you know Evernote. I've got Notion open. I've got Asana open. I'm getting really diligent about my plans. I'm really getting focused on my activities of what I need to do and kind of set things up for success in that way. Um, And then after that, when I get into the afternoon, it's mostly spent with some team, you know, making sure that things are happening the way they need to be happening, you know, checking in if I need to doing discussions, etc. But I also don't volunteer my time unnecessarily. Um, And so some of my team members kind of think that I'm not like the kind of person that wants to you know, get on the Zoom and chat and everything else, but I'm like a very busy guy. We've all got lots of things going on. So if I can do something or get to a result that doesn't involve spending 30 minutes on Zoom, talking something through that can be done on Asana, that can be done in a five minute loom or on a Slack conversation or anything, I'm more than likely to do that because I'm all about efficiency and effectiveness and how to get the Mm -hmm. job done. Um, And I'm also cognizant that I've got four clients that I'm juggling that might have different priorities and different schedules and different launches happening. So I need to be very diligent about that. But like I said, yeah, Cameron, at the end of the day, first and foremost, none of this would matter unless I put family first. So yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, I'm usually here, I mean, you know, it's, it's 20 to 7 p.m. on a Friday night and sometimes my son will come in from school and grab his computer and then we're gonna set up and dinner here in a little bit and everything else. And I have to honor and respect that. Otherwise, if it's all work all the time, then I can't show up and give the best value that I can to my clients. So I'm yeah. very cognizant that Mondays are great buffer time or mornings are great buffer time, thinking time. Afternoons can be a bit busy, but I structure it so I'm not kind of double booked. I'm not kind of like spinning my wheels until eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, and saying, "Oh gosh, I got to spend
1: this time on Saturday afternoon and do all this work." Uh, uh-uh. like
0: when my computer's done here, when we're done, I will not
1: touch things until Monday morning. Well, and I, and I guess you're lucky in Europe as well that they don't start eating dinner till ten o'clock or at eight o'clock at yeah. night. Right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you, have, you adopted, <laughs> have you adopted that schedule, or are you still more North American, like six p.m. dinners?
0: No, it's later. I think last night we had dinner about 8:30 or so. It's it's just It was an adjustment for everybody, but it is. That's that's part of the culture here. It's like you just you know you tend to have your meals later and and longer, right? I mean like you know I've seen you travel in Italy and other places. I mean, you know Saturday lunch here is sacred. It's a multi-hour event every single Saturday. It's not grab a sandwich and walk down the street. It's it's like several courses with cheese with wine, very very good fresh ingredients and products. And luckily my wife is a fantastic cook, so she loves to. To cook and entertain so i get
1: the, the benefit of both worlds <laughs> awesome um, all right i want to go back to the um the term fractional so what is what is a fractional coo meaning for you
0: fractional coo for me is the concept of the COO in the all sense of the word uh being able to support the visionary first and foremost and support the founder um, provide that structure, uh, leading, managing, and holding people, plans, and projects accountable. That's my mantra. That's what I think of when I think of COO. Um, they're looking at plans. They're looking at PL, They're looking at the big picture vision from the visionary, and then making it happen. You know this from strategic coach, and it was a game changer when Dan first said it. Is that the visionary makes it up, somebody like the COO makes it real, and then the team makes it recur. So my role is making it real and then making sure the team continues to execute it and it recurs on a ongoing, consistent basis. But for me, it's supporting the visionary so that they can truly be in the visionary seat and keeping them in their lane. Right. To pull the the phrase from you, which I think is really helpful, keeping them in their lane. Uh, And then fractional is being able to do that for clients that don't necessarily have the need or the capacity for somebody to do that full-time. So that's why I've been able to kind of split my time. I've got four clients, I kind of split it equally about 25% each of them, you know, throughout the week. Um, And and that's what they need because they don't necessarily have the team or the size of business that requires somebody to be there full-time. What's interesting though, one of the clients I have here in France, they've just hired a full-time COO because with what we've done with his business in the last two mm-hmm. years, he now needs somebody to be that you know full-time, 40-hours-a-week sure. person that could be there. Yep. But for the first two years, that was 10 hours a week. That's what he needed. So yep. it's a matter
1: of just doing it in that part-time arrangement. I was just speaking with one of our CEO Alliance members the other day, and they were looking for a fractional chief people officer, like a head of HR. I saw that. Who could actually kind of coach their HR person. So I reached out to our former head of HR that I helped recruit at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, our head of people. And um, she's actually going to talk to our member, which is great. But I think there's going to be more and more of that where we have companies that are in the you know 10 to 50 employee zone that... Would love to have a CFO, oh, they'd love to have a CFO, they'd love mm-hmm. to have a CMO, they, like a real one, but they don't they don't yeah. need that 250000 dollars dollars person, nor can they afford it. Exactly. But they don't really, but they've got a, you know, they've got a, a person with a big title, but they're really more a director level. And they, they mm-hmm. need some of that strategic guidance. They need some of that mentoring, but not full time either. So is that exactly is that part of what you play is the mentoring role? Yeah, it is.
0: It, it totally that's what I was about to say. As part of it is being able to bring that experience of what I've done with Boldheart, which is now a multi-seven-figure company. It's been like that for 10 years. And it's a it's a you know, it's a leverage business, it's a it's a self-managing business. Of course, we're still involved with it, but we're not involved with it pushing the boulder up the hill 50, 60, 70 hours a week, you know, doing everything. We've got 25, 30 people now. We've got people that own marketing, people that own sales, operations. Finance, I'm in my integrator seat and I love what I do. Fabian's in her visionary seat and she loves what she does. And so being able to take that experience and that expertise and that playbook, if you will, and bring that to these other clients that don't have the mindset or don't have the understanding or even the structure, right? I mean, when I went into a client and we created for the first time. You know, they were doing daily huddles with their team and doing meetings all of the time and everything was in Slack and email and I'm thinking my head's spinning. I can't keep track of what anything gets done here. So we implemented a whole structure of how we use Asana. Now everything's cadenced out in Asana, our annual, our quarterly, our semi-annual, all of the projects, all of the team members know what to do, when to do it by, who needs to sign off on, etc. So we've built this process, this structure in place that's been really beneficial and it's leveraging what we've been able to do or what I've been able to do with Boldheart, and then coaching those clients and those companies and the visionary to, to, to use that, that model, that framework that allows them to do much more than they would have
1: done on their own or without having that, that, that knowledge. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked about pushing the boulder up the hill. I've always talked about pushing a snowball up a hill because as you keep <laughs> pushing, it keep, keeps getting bigger as you get it up that hill, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so, it takes um, a different shape. You said you were in investment banking prior to joining Boldheart, or was it?
0: I worked on Wall Street, but it was more in project management. So kind of, I was the liaison between a lot of the investment banking, trading, um, uh, salespeople, and then building technology platforms. So I was that person in the middle that can kind of bridge the gap between the two. And what firm were you with? I was with UBS. Okay. Uh, and then before that, I was with Lehman Brothers before they went, uh, you know,
1: uh, by the wayside. And I started off with Deutsche Bank back my in old, uh, oh, the late nineties. My old, my old roommate wrote the book called Bear Trap about Bear Stearns, and um, oh my gosh! And it came out right at the start of the collapse. And I'm like, wait, how did you know about Lehman? He goes, we all knew about Lehman. I'm like, but the book, yeah. the book came out like the week that it was happening. Like, how did you know? It yeah. was good. We all knew it was like this huge. Yeah, we all knew. So. Yeah what was it like leaving the investment banking world and joining a small entrepreneurial organization? <laughs> and how do you, how do we bring, you know, if we're hiring somebody from similar kinds of industries, how do we know, yeah. like, what do we look for? What's the DNA to say it will work versus it'll be a disaster? Uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Cause I, I mean, at the time it was a huge
0: leap of faith, a huge leap of faith, because again, you have to remember I was then working with my wife, right? So we were making a decision to work together in her business, which I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about business coaching. I knew what she did from afar and the clients that she had and what she was doing, but I wasn't involved in the business at all. So I really came in without any knowledge. And I made the, the comment once that like, I had to kind of start in the mailroom and work my way up. And what I mean by that is I had to get into the weeds of the business to really understand what is it that we do here? How do we make money? How do we get clients? What's an email list? What's a product launch? Why do we do these mastermind things? Like all of those things that were happening that I knew nothing about. But then it gave me that perspective so that when I went to go and find the team and look at the right people for the right seats, I needed to have that perspective of not necessarily having done all of the work. Like I didn't build the website, but I knew the importance of what the website was for. It was to generate leads. It wasn't necessarily to be a glorified business card, right? Or Mm -hmm. all of these things that we needed to do um, and that was part of the mindset of just kind of trial and error, kind of throwing myself into the deep de- deep end and figuring it out, but also leveraging what I was able to do from my days in corporate, and in my sense being able to, like I described, kind of bridge the gap between developers and technologists and computer engineers and traders and salespeople and making sure that the two of them are talking together. So when I came in, I could understand, like, I don't want to say translating, but understand, Fabian, what's the vision? What do you want to see this year? What's going to happen? And then be like, okay, I need to hire social media people. I need two more VAs. I need to hire a salesperson. I need to hire somebody that can do the website. I need somebody to do bookkeeping, customer service, all coaches, and being able to cultivate that. Fulfill on the vision of what was coming from, from the visionary. Um, so it was like an evolution of understanding more and more of what the team looked like that we needed to hire, and then making sure we had the right people in those seats. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh,
1: it's been a, it's been and, a process and do it with a smaller budget than you have in the corporate world, right? Where you, yeah, you, hire, hire people you. Will ask like. You know, like ahead. hiring hiring a person in the corporate world is like sure go for it but in the entrepreneurial world it's like wait that, that's a major hit on the p l
0: yeah and i like the, the the company i have now the french client that i have that we're grooming his full-time ceo he comes from corporate he comes from healthcare so like anything entrepreneurial is a completely different mindset and and sometimes what i've also learned and it took me especially because of the way that i'm wired it made me realize that sometimes the plan is not the plan Sometimes the plan is what we're doing and we have this expression, which is sometimes we have to build the plane as we fly it. That's the nature of the beast in building and bootstrapping an entrepreneurial company where you don't have the coffer of the cash and an HR department to go and hire all these people. We're all wearing multiple hats. We're all juggling lots of balls in the air. But when you can have this structure and this process to have some, um, you know, normalcy around it and not like it feels like every day is kind of you know whack-a-mole or flying by the seat of our pants it allows us to scale and leverage so that's part of what we've been able to do in more and more but it's a mindset you need to be able to have some tough skin to know that not everything's going to work out to plan things change things pivot. I mean, just look last two years by itself, yeah. like everything was pivoting. Everything was used to be in the events business. Now we're in the enrollment business, right? So you have to be able to adjust and adapt like that.
1: I think that's where the, the entrepreneurial kind of builds or scales is when the, the momentum that creates momentum and then you scale the plans along the way. And then all of a sudden that plan becomes kind of the infrastructure for the next stage of momentum. Exactly. So it is, yeah, it, yeah you're working along that. All right, let's go back to the 22-year-old Derek. I want you to give yourself some advice when you were 22. What do you wish you'd known back then that you know for sure to be true today?
0: Well, that's a great question. Uh, 22, so I had just started working at Deutsche Bank on Wall Street in New York City. Um, I would say trust yourself that you don't always have to have the entire plan Fully laid out. I had this expectation in my mind, perhaps it was from my parents, perhaps it was from society, that I needed to be in investment banking. I needed to be on Wall Street. I needed to have that be the trajectory of my career to the nth degree. And I remember, I shared this when I started working with Fabienne. Uh, I lived in uh, Stanford, Connecticut, right outside of New York City, and I used to take the metro metro line from stanford into grand central um and i'd take like a 6 a.m train and i would come home at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night and i was working hellish hours and i didn't see my daughter at the time i was just born Uh, i was exhausted and cranky on the weekends and i remember sitting on the train and if you ever take a commuter line often enough there's like an unspoken code of conduct which is one you usually have your own seat and especially on this line everybody's reading the new york times the wall street journal and i sat across from this guy for a few weeks where he was in the same seat and he was older than I am and looked very seasoned and professional, but it looks like he'd been doing that for 30, 40, 50 years. And I had this epiphany being like, I'm in my young twenties. Am I going to want to be doing that in 40 or 50 years? Is that who I want to become? Wow. And nothing against him. He probably had like a yep. great life and everything else, but that's a long trajectory of what I'm going to be doing now, which yes, I might evolve and go to different companies and a slightly different role. But I went from one industry, to a completely different industry being an entrepreneur overnight. And I could never be more grateful for having that experience because I am more of who I am today and can trust more of what I'm capable of doing today than I ever would have been able to, if I'd stayed in
1: that career path. So yeah. That's what well, I would share. And I'm guessing this is your last business call of the day. So your now your commute for now. The end of the day is about a one minute commute to the kitchen and a kiss to your wife and a grab a glass of wine. Right. So
0: that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. So it's a big change from uh, from 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 that from that moment. But I knew that that's and I don't know what it was, but I think it was just and maybe part of it was the inspiration from my wife of, of having done that. And she left corporate and, and created her own business and then seeing that that's something that I can do. Um, that's something that I could be a part of. And I think also knowing that if we were going to do that together um, and have that that foundation of our partnership be the backbone of everything, that we could we could one plus one equals three in terms of what we would be able to accomplish together. So it was very exciting. But it was a leap. It was like, you know, I'm leaving the cushy job. I'm leaving the salary, the insurance, everything else. But honestly, Cameron, within like three months, I remember like, oh, I should have done this years ago. Look at, look at the impact that we're having. Not just financially, but just meaning and fulfillment, you know, which sure. I don't
1: think I would have got if I stayed in that that career. Well, Derek Fredrickson, the COO of Boldheart, Fractional Integrator, and COO Alliance member, thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Really appreciate your time today. You're welcome, Cameron. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.